Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we got to hear a lecture by Dr. Herman J. Selderhus. He's a professor of church history and church polity at the Theological University of Appledorn in the Netherlands. He's also the director of REFO 500. That's an international project involving museums and universities and libraries around the world, preparing for the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door at Wittenberg in 2017. That'll be just next year. But this lecture was given here at Beeson in 2011. And in this lecture, Dr. Selderhus is focused on the whole question of how to prepare for death and what difference the Protestant Reformation brought to the way we understand death and the preparation for death. It's called A New Way of Dying. It's a lecture that has a lot of pastoral wisdom in it, as well as historical information and knowledge. Dr. Selderhus is the leading uh, Reformation historian of his country on John Calvin. He is the author of a number of books, including John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life, Calvin's Theology of the Psalms, and also he is the editor of of two volumes in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, both of them on the Psalms. Let's listen to this great scholar, Dr. Herman Selderhus, as he speaks on a new way of dying. Uh, thanks for the uh, introduction and thanks for the invitation. It's for me a privilege to be here. I was uh, impressed uh, the first time I, I came here with everything that is to be seen here and that's to be heard here. I had a wonderful time. Uh, the last time, and it's uh, even better this time. Um, so thank you for coming, although the topic is not very attractive on this bright day. But, uh, well, you paid for it, so you better stay. Um, and we'll get through it, and I hope I can uh, let you go with some comfort afterwards. I start with a quotation. And as a consequence, we have done away in our churches with the papal atrocities as vigils, masses for the souls of the deceased, purgatory, and all other inventions that were undertaken for the dead. And so we swept the churches clean. End of quote. With these words, Martin Luther summarizes what can be called the Reformation of dying. Not only liturgically and ritually, but above all substantially and theologically, the Reformation meant a new view on and attitude towards all aspects of death, dying, and burial, of mourning and comfort, of farewell to this life and passing on to the life hereafter. The theology of the cross and the message of grace implied in theory for the believer that he or she was freed from the fear of death and above all for appearing for the judgment seat of God. This liberation should also mean for those that stayed behind a different attitude towards those that die and their state after death. Thus the fundamental question of the Reformation, how do I find a gracious God, is the same as the question, how do I find a peaceful death? In this paper, we want to listen to the answers Martin Luther and John Calvin gave to this question but first, a few things need to be said about death in late medieval theology. In the late Middle Ages, there is a general fear of dying and a continued attention for the deceased. The fear had to do with the presentation of God as judge, who at death confronts the believer with the scales in which good and bad acts are weighed, always resulting in an unknown time in purgatory. Direct access into heaven was in principle impossible, and a doctrine that merit was needed in addition to grace implied that one could never be sure of eternal salvation. In order to prepare believers on letting go of the early th earthly things and on the confrontation with God, the genre of the Ars Moriendi literature arose. This preparation through little illustrated booklets was meant to balance sermons and a spirituality in which stress was laid upon a Christian life and warnings for the pains of hell. 
the booklets wanted to give pastoral help by showing the dying believer what all would come over him and what he or she could do to counter and limit temptations, doubts, and fears. Temptations, you mentioned it yesterday, tentaciones is hardly to be translated. Uh, I can say anfechtung, or in Dutch anfechtingen, but uh, Dean George has explained yesterday, so uh, you still know what that means. A struggle of faith. This implies it was only limitation, a reduction, and not a liberation, and that to the will of the believer, the responsibility and the power was attested to make dying less tough and to reduce the stay in purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory also resulted in a permanent presence of the dead among the living. For those who remained behind had the possibility to reduce this time in purgatory for the deceased with prayers, masses, and good works. Spirituality was characterized by a fear of death and judgment and a daily responsibility for those that had died. This spirituality caused many women and men to enter the monastery and live a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience to get closer to God, make dying less fearful, and be more productive for the dead. Martin Luther is one of the best examples of this motivation to become a monk. The theology of the Reformation implied a fundamentally different approach of this topic. The message that eternal life is received in the way of grace and faith, and, at least in theory, that for the believer there was no reason to fear appearing before God. The Ars Moriendi literature was radically changed in essence, and Luther's rejection of the doctrine of purgatory meant there was no concern for the dead needed, nor was it possible to do something for them. The message at the church of the church at the funeral was no longer focused on the deceased, but was a message of comfort for those left behind. At deathbed, doubt about the eternal destination was substituted for certainty of eternal salvation. The question, however, is whether this message reached the congregation in such a way that Protestants indeed changed their attitude towards death and dying. As many of us know, there is quite a difference between theory and practice when it comes to the life of the Church. Also, the question remains that whereas the Reformation Church did away with all the old liturgical habits and customs around death, the people in the pews did the same and if they did not stick to pagan, regional, and traditional Catholic, and, mo and often they stuck to pagan, regional, and traditional Catholic rituals. To these questions, we will not have time to go into, but we will focus on what Luther and Calvin have said about death and dying, and how they dealt with death in their pastoral duties. Martin Luther and the Reformation of Death as said, death was daily and omnipresent in the late Middle Ages and the 16th century. And not without reason, it has been called an age of death. The plague that swept away one-third of Europe's population was in the days of Luther and Calvin not over yet. Another cause of massive deaths were the many greater and small wars, and in their aftermath, looting and killing soldiers. Crop failure, economical turmoils caused a lack of nutrition, and even famine. The high rate of infant death meant an average lifespan of 27 or 28 years. About 40 to 50 percent of the people died before the age of 10. And this meant that you were very old if you reached to be 50. The Reformation did not change these numbers, but did in the way to deal with them. In the midst of this presence of death, Luther's spirituality, just as with most other believers, deeply influenced by, on the one side, the suffering Christ on the cross, and on the other side, the judgment seat of God. This all calls for the central question of the Reformation, how to get a gracious God. Or, as it can also be defined, the way Luther defined the object of theology, man guilty of sin and lust, and God justifying and saving guilty men. What this means for dealing with death in Luther theology and spirituality can be best seen in his well-known Sermon on Preparing to Die, 
1519, which is the old Ars Moriendi, the art of dying well, in a complete new setting. There are in Luther's thinking about death and dying four major topics that can also easily be discovered in this famous and influential sermon. First, dealing with sin in the sight of death, where we see how Luther defines the relation between law and gospel. Second, the meaning of baptism in relation to death. Third, the central meaning of faith for meeting God in his judgment. And fourth, the question how to die in a Christian way. First, law and gospel. As to the first point mentioned, we here see the essence of Luther's new insight. The awareness of sin and guilt and of God's justice and righteousness means that we have to admit that we are sinners and deserve death as well as eternal death. God does not take away judgment, but brings us right into it in order to bring us to life again. Herewith, the gospel is that the law does its work by judging us and bringing us to death and does so in Christ. In Christ, we receive the wages of sin, death, and eternal punishment. But just this is God's given righteousness other than his demanding righteousness. Yet in life, we are constantly confronted with the law as the law shows us our sins and shortcomings. Thus, the law confronts us with death, and so we need to hold on to the promise of the gospel in order to keep seeing that we are righteous in Christ. Death, sin, and law are, as Luther says, a horrible trio that constantly afflict us. And because a Christian knows about law and sin, he knows the fears of death more than anyone else. Death, however, changes its face because of the gospel. Death wears the mask of judgment, but behind the mask is grace, and thus death becomes life. In line with this definition of the relation between law and gospel is Luther's word that in fact our death is the last official act of the law. For after that, the law cannot confront us anymore with our guilt and sin and the punishment of it. Before that, however, this function of the law is very present, so that Luther can even say, we were born towards death. Second, baptism and death. This process of dying, ending with the deliverance in death, has started with baptism. Baptism is the entrance into a lifelong process of dying of sin in one's life. We heard a lot more about that yesterday in Dr. Beckwith's paper. Baptism is the entrance into a lifelong process of dying of sin in one's life. This means that preparation for death does not start at a late age or when death is near. Preparing for death is a lifelong exercise which can only be successful in a steady and intense hearing of the word of God and receiving the sacraments. In a letter to the pastors in Breslau, Wroclaw, he goes into detail and says that, I quote, Everyone should regularly consider death and prepare for it with penance and with using the sacrament every eight days or so, or once every two weeks. For Luther, the sacrament of penance remains next to the Lord's Supper and baptism. Penance is the returning to the essence of baptism as a dying of sin and a coming to renewal of life. That's how Luther brings baptism and death together. I now have a longer quotation. This significance of baptism, Luther says, that is, the dying or drowning of sin is not fulfilled completely in this life. No, not until man passes through bodily death also and utterly decays to dust. The sacrament or sign 
of baptism is quickly over, as we plainly see. But the thing it signifies, that is, the spiritual baptism, the drowning of sin, lasts so long as we live, and is completed only in death. Then it is that man is completely sunk in baptism, and that thing comes to pass which baptism signifies. Therefore this life is nothing else than a spiritual baptism which does not cease till death, and he who is baptized is condemned to die. As though the priest, when he baptizes, were to say, Lo, thou art sinful flesh, therefore I drown thee in God's name, and in his name condemn thee to thy death, that with thee all thy sins may die and be destroyed. Wherefore, St. Paul says, We are buried with Christ by baptism into death. And the sooner after baptism a man dies, the sooner is his baptism completed. For sin never entirely ceases while this body lives which is so wholly conceived in sin, that sin is its very nature, as says the prophet, Behold, I was conceived in sin, and in iniquity did my mother bear me. And there is no help for the sinful nature, unless it dies and is destroyed with all its sin. So then, the life of a Christian, from baptism to the grave, is nothing else than the beginning of a blessed death. For at the last day, God will make him altogether new. End of quote. Being baptized means to enter into death because of sin, and therefore longing for death as deliverance. Baptism is the start of the struggle to kill sin in oneself on the basis of God's given righteousness, a struggle that comes to conclusion with the death of my body, with me passing away as the final victory in the long battle. Or, as Luther can say somewhere else, in baptism we start killing sin, and this means we start practicing to die. Death is the completion of baptism. This definition of baptism is also the source for comfort, for the dying believer can find rest and peace in baptism as the seal and sign of God's given righteousness and of God's covenant with men. In baptism we drowned, and therefore died with Christ, and with him we will arise. The dying believer should not doubt, for God will save him massively, Luther says, as God has promised through Christ has deserved for us, and unto Christ we were baptized. The idea of the covenant is in this work very prominent, and it is remarkable that Luther in later writings hardly comes back to it. Luther refers in this sermon often to the necessity of penitence, which is one of the three sacraments he left over out of the seven existing. Penitence is making baptism as a process of dying work. The essential difference is that penitence no longer is a condition to receive grace, but a consequence of having received grace. Therefore, the fear of death does not bring to penitence, but to trust in God's promise. The teaching that on the deathbed one should make a plenary confession and that one is damned if you die with an unconfessed mortal sin has disappeared and made place for faith in the promises of Christ and for applying the benefits of his work on the cross. Whereas death is the final completion of baptism, it is at the same time as a farewell from this world, a new birth into a new life, which results in a certain joy in dying, knowing that more joy is awaiting. Third, the tentaciones of death. All of this does not mean that the believer does not fear death, nor that there is such a fear that the law is as present as the gospel, to put it in Luther's vocabulary. The awareness of sin, the reality of death, grave and hell, but also, Luther says, the doctrine of predestination can give rise to much fear, and no pastor, no fellow believer, should take this lightly. The question, therefore, is how to deal with these tentaciones. 
In his answer to this question, Luther relates to the late medieval Ars Moriendi literature in which, as I said in pictures, it was, it was very vividly shown what all happens on the deathbed. The devil and his demons would show up to confront you with your sins and make you doubt your eternal salvation. Family and friends show up and show you what all you have to leave behind and what sadness you cause your relatives by dying. Luther does not deny all this, but his remedy is a different one, for he does not refer to Mary, to the saints, or all the good one has done, but to the saving grace of Christ and how to adapt it to oneself on a deathbed. I quote, In this affair, we must exercise all diligence not to open our homes to any of these images and not to paint the devil over the door. These foes will of themselves boldly rush in and seek to occupy the heart completely with their image, their arguments and their signs. And when that happens, man is doomed and God is entirely forgotten. The only thing to do with these pictures at that time is to combat and expel them. Indeed, where they are found alone and not in conjunction with other pictures, they belong nowhere else than in hell among the devils. But he who wants to fight against them and drive them out will find that it is not enough just to wrestle and tussle and scuffle with them. They will prove too strong for him, and matters will go from bad to worse. The one and only approach is to drop them entirely and have nothing to do with them. But how is that done? It is done in this way. You must, you must look at death while you are alive and see sin in the light of grace and hell in the light of heaven, permitting nothing to divert you from that view. And you must not view or ponder death as such, not in yourself or in your nature, nor in those who were killed by God's wrath and were overcome by death. If you do that, you will be lost and defeated with them. But you must resolutely turn your gaze, the thoughts of your heart, and all your senses away from this picture and look at death closely and untiringly, only as seen in those who died in God's grace and who have overcome death, particularly in Christ and then also in all his saints. In such pictures, death will not appear terrible and gruesome. No, it will see, seem contemptible and dead, slain and overcome in life. For Christ is nothing other than sheer life, as his saints are likewise. The more profoundly you impress that image upon your heart and gaze upon it, the more the image of death will pale and vanish of itself without struggle or battle. Thus you must concern yourself solely with the death of Christ, and then you will find life. But if you look at death in any other way, it will kill you with great anxiety and anguish. This is what Christ says, in the world that is in yourself you have unrest, but in me you will find peace. End of quote. Fourth, Luther's Ars Moriendi. In spite of the gospel, death remains a lonely event. As Luther says, this is a, a very existential quote of Luther, where he says, All of us are called unto death, and no one will die for another, but everyone needs to fight with death, all by yourself and all on your own. We can shout in someone's ears, someone's ears, but you yourself need to be ready in the hour of death. At that moment, I cannot be with you, nor you with me. And in this, each of us needs to know personally the fundamentals of the Christian faith and be well armed with them. End of quote. Dying is the final battle between law and gospel but we are sure that the gospel will win. So the question is not who will win, but do we listen in death enough to the gospel to suffer as little doubts 
and afflictions as possible. Most important on a deathbed is to keep your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. For Luther, this should be done very substantially, namely, that the pastor should take a crucifix with him and show it to the dying believer. At no other moment pastors are needed more than at the moment of death. I quote, For in death you need the clerical office the most, so that he, with word and sacrament, strengthens and comforts conscience in order to surmount death through faith. We now move over to John Calvin on death and dying. When we now listen to what John Calvin says about these things, mostly in his commentary on the Psalms, we can say, in comparison to Luther, that the lyrics are the same, but the tune is different. It is the same theology, but with some different aspects. Other than Luther, and here comes in the close relation between theology and biography. Dean George pointed at that in Luther's life. It counts for each one of us, also for the Reformers. For Calvin did not go through this existential process of fear of death and doubt of grace. His struggle was not the grace of God, but the providence of God. In other words, his question was not, how do I find a gracious God? But how can I understand God in the way he deals with his children? This means that regarding death and dying, Luther was in a storm and found a more quiet sea. Kelvin, Luther's best student, was already on the quiet sea, but he struggled with God's journey. Result of all this is that Kelvin speaks more about the struggle of living in this chaotic world and less about the struggle of dying. He speaks more about spiritual death than about physical dying. And if he does, it is more about being dead and the life hereafter. Kelvin takes death as a fact. It is a clear result of the fall in paradise and thus of sin. The faithful have no need to fear death, Kelvin writes, since death is the destruction of the flesh, but not of the soul. Indeed, he says that the one who truly trusts in God scorns death. In a longer passage, I will now quote from the Institutes, we notice the different attitude of Calvin towards death compared to Luther. I quote, But most strange to say, many who boast of being Christians instead of thus longing for death are so afraid of it that they tremble at the very mention of it as a thing ominous and dreadful. We cannot wonder, indeed, that our natural feelings should be somewhat shocked at the mention of our dissolution, but it is altogether intolerable that the light of piety should not be so powerful in a Christian breast, breast as with greater consolation to overcome and suppress that fear. For if we reflect that this our tabernacle, unstable, defective, corruptible, fading, pining, and putrid, is dissolved in order that it may forthwith be renewed in sure, perfect, incorruptible, in fine, in heavenly glory, will not faith compel us eagerly to desire what nature dreads? If we reflect that by death we are recalled from exile to inhabit our native country, a heavenly country, shall this give us no comfort? But everything longs for permanent existence. I admit this, and therefore contend that we ought to look to future immortality, where we may obtain that fixed condition which nowhere appears on the earth. For Paul admirably enjoins believers to hasten cheerfully to death, not because they would be unclothed but clothed upon. Shall the lower animals and inanimate creatures themselves, even wood and stone as conscious of their present vanity, long for the final resurrection that they may with the sons of God be delivered from vanity? And shall we endued with the light of intellect, and more than intellect, enlightened by the Spirit of God, when our essence is in question, rise no higher than the corruption of this earth? But it is not my purpose, nor is this the place, to plead against this great perverseness. At the outset, I declared 
that I had no wish to engage in a diffuse discussion of commonplaces. For Kelvin, there is no reason to fear death. This is something which only those who direct themselves toward Christ can do. David already knew that Christ would rise from the dead, and from this he derives the assurance that he himself will also be resurrected. However, we share in this imperishability only if we have become subject to what is perishable. This means that the fullness of life that is in Christ our head filters down the members of his body only in drops. By this Kelvin means that through justification the faithful do not directly begin to participate in the resurrection. The faithful will first have to make their way through death and the grave. In the burial of people, God does indeed want something to be evident of the resurrection of the last day. And therefore it is entirely grievous when circumstances prevent the faithful from being buried. Burial is to the living a help, suggesting something almost sacramental, burial as a sacrament for Kelvin. Faith looks toward immortality, also when burial is not possible. The fact that the faithful remain living even after the death of the body is assured, argues Kelvin, through God's divine nature. I quote, The faithful are born again from imperishable seed and will survive death because God always remains the same. End of quote. God will thus save our lives even from death itself, since when one dies, the Lord will keep him or her from being destroyed. Kelvin's, Kelvin claims that the grace of God would be grossly underestimated if he were able to take care of us only in life. Appealing to scripture, he asserts that death for God's servants does not mean destruction and they are not wiped out when they depart from this world, but they keep on existing. Although it seems that our soul disappears when it leaves the body, in fact, it is gathered in God's bosom in such a way that it is faithfully preserved there until the day of resurrection. Consequently, it is a serious heresy to believe that everything just ends upon death. The continued existence of the faithful after this life, Kelvin asserts, does not mean that there is a form of communion amongst the dead where they praise God together. Here the reformer is not referring to the status of the dead, but to the communication between those deceased. As far as any communication with God is concerned, there is the troubling statement in Psalm 88 verse 6 that God no longer remembers those who are in the grave. Kelvin solves this matter by interpreting that here the author has let go of himself, being so overwhelmed by his cares that he does not express himself as thoughtfully as he should. That, that is an interesting remark, of course, for someone who is a Bible-believing Christian, as Kelvin was, that the author of Scripture was so overwhelmed by his cares, says Kelvin, that he does not express himself thoughtfully as he should. Well, this would never have happened to Kelvin himself, of course. Kelvin even speculates that the light of faith may have been momentarily dimmed in the author of the psalm. When David in Psalm 6 says that in death there is no consideration of God, this is no proof that the dead are aware of nothing. Rather, David here points out in prayer to God that a dead David has no opportunity anymore to praise God among the living. Kelvin emphatically rejects the interpretation of those who conclude from this verse that the dead no longer feel or realize anything. Death does indeed put an end to our praise of God, but that does not imply that when the souls of the faithful have discarded their bodies, they no longer have any knowledge of God or any sentiments towards Him. Kelvin states that there is a clear difference between the faithful and the unfaithful where their eternal existence is concerned. It is noteworthy that while saying that believers have eternal life with God, in the commentary on the Psalms, Kelvin says nothing about the continued existence of the unfaithful. Also, he says that there is such a continued existence for the unfaithful. He does say that, 
but he offers no details about the end which awaits the godless. There's only a single instance where he speaks of hell as the eternal fire that has been prepared for the outcast. In a different passage, he does not go any further than to say that those who reject Christ will have to deal with the majesty of God. He also dismisses as too harsh the common interpretation he has encountered that in Christ's victory over his enemy, so much blood will flow that it will form a stream from which Christ will drink. He states that it is sufficient to know that the end will result in the damnation of the unfaithful and that their lives here on earth have been of no consequence. He often points out the contrast between the faithful who find themselves in an abyss of adversity but also come out of it again and the unfaithful who ultimately find themselves in eternal ruin. The blame for their destruction lies within themselves. Kelvin declares, since God's vengeance is a response to their depravity, God hates transgressions and therefore he casts out those who commit them. When God approaches us in a friendly manner and we do not respect him or receive him in sincerity, destruction awaits us. I will now move on to the part on mourning and comfort and the way Luther and Kelvin did that in practice. In rather serious-looking handbooks published by rather serious and expensive publishers, it is stated that mourning over the loss of young children did not come up until the 18th century. The argument for that is too many children died to be able to develop grief, or to say it unacademically, they were used to it. Another opinion is that especially in the Reformed tradition, the doctrines of providence and predestination implied that there should and could be no grief or mourning, for that would be an act against God's decisions. Predestination would only give rise to doubts about the eternal state. The question posed in one book is, did Reformed people have emotions at all? I do not want to analyze all these opinions, but as a summary, I can say that when you do not read and know the sources, there's a lot of stupidities to be said. <laughs> Listening, for example, to what Luther, Calvin, and other reformers said about the death of their children will soon learn that these opinions are far from the truth. Even three years after the death of his daughter, Magdalene, Luther writes, I quote, It may appear strange but I am still mourning the death of my dear Magdalene, and I am not able to forget her. Yet I know surely that she is in heaven, that she has eternal life there, and that God has thereby given me a true token of his love, even while I live, taken my flesh and blood to his fatherly heart. In a comforting letter to Konrad Cordatus, pastor at Zwickau, who just lost his three-month-old son, Luther refers to the death of his own eight-month-old daughter Elizabeth. I quote, May Christ comfort you in this sorrow and affliction of yours. Who else can soothe such a grief? I can easily believe what you write, for I too have had experience of such a calamity which comes to a father's heart sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the marrow. So Reformation theology did bring a new way of dying and of mourning. But the certainty of eternal life did leave room for grief, for tears, for those emotions that parents suffer in all ages from beginning to the end of times. In Luther's correspondence, a large number of letters can be found in which he offers comfort to those in sickness or to those mourning of the death of a loved one. A fine example is Luther's letter dated April 22, 1532, to Thomas Zink, the father of John Zink, who was a student in Wittenberg and had died there. Grace and peace, dear friend. You will now have heard of your son's death, who was studying here. 
he was seized with serious illness. And although everything was done for him, the disease got the upper hand and bore him away to our Lord Jesus. He was very dear to all of us, especially to me, for he shortened many an evening for me by singing in my house. And in addition, he was quiet and well-behaved and a diligent student. So his death was a great grief to us, for we would gladly have retained him. But he was even dearer to God, who desired to have him. So it is only natural his fate should affect you and your dear wife, seeing it has grieved me so. Still rather, thank God for giving you such an amiable, pious son, upon whom all your trouble and expense were so well bestowed. But comfort yourselves with the thought of his falling asleep with such a testimony of his faith on his lip, which was a marvel to us, so that there is as little doubt that he is with God, his true father, as that the Christian religion is true. And be grateful that he, like so many others, did not come to an untimely end. And even had he lived, your means could have helped him to nothing higher than a profession of some kind. And now he is in the place he would not exchange for the whole world. So take comfort that he is not lost, but only sent on before to be kept in everlasting bliss. Therefore, we must not, not sorrow as those which has, have no hope. In another letter, ten years later, Luther tries to comfort his friend Justus Jonas on the death of his wife. Grace and peace in Christ, who is our salvation and consolation, my dear Jonas, I have been so thoroughly prostrated by this unexpected calamity that I do not know what to write. We have all lost in her the dearest of friends. Her bright presence, her eyes so full of trust, all drew forth our love, especially as we knew that she shared both our joys and sorrows as if they had been her own. A bitter parting in very deed, for I hoped that after I was gone she would have been the best of comforters for those I left behind. The deep longing after one so distinguished by piety, property, and amiability makes me weep. Therefore, I can easily imagine your feelings. Temporal consolation is of no avail here. One must look solely to the unseen and eternal. She is our precursor into the regions beyond, where we shall all be gathered on our dismissal from this veil of tears and this corrupt world. Amen. Mourn, therefore, as you have good cause to do, but at the same time comfort yourself with the thought of the common lot of humanity. I am too grieved on your account to write more. My wife was thunderstruck when she heard the news, for she and your wife were as one soul. We pray God to give you temporal consolation, for you have good cause to rejoice when you know your pious wife has been snatched from your side to enjoy everlasting life in heaven. And of this you cannot doubt, as she fell asleep in Jesus, with so many pious expressions of her faith in him. Thus also slumbered my little daughter, which is my great and only consolation. God, who has tried you, will comfort you now and forever. Kelvin If one at all, Kelvin cannot be behind the image of Calvinists who show no emotion of death. Bury their loved ones without shedding a tear, and thereby show that they are ready to receive whatever comes from God's fatherly hand. It is true that his only comfort was, I quote, that even death could not be an unhappy circumstance for a Christian. But Calvin's letters are at the same time full of tears over loved ones who had died. He thought that this grief did not conflict with the belief that God was in control over all things, when he heard of the persecutions suffered by the Waldenses, he wrote to Pharrell, I am writing in tears and worn out with grief. I sometimes burst out in tears so that I have to stop writing. And when his friend Guillaume de Tri, Lord of Varennes, passed away, Kelvin became sick with grief. He writes, I have to dictate this letter from my bed in great grief, 
for my dear Varen has been taken away from me. Therefore, should present-day scholars suggest that Calvin's doctrine of predestination providence left no room for certainty at the deathbed, nor for emotions at the funeral, they can only say this on having not read any of Calvin at all. Calvin tied into a well-known medieval song that Luther used also when he wrote that we are surrounded by death in the middle of this life, but that we can be convinced we will in death be surrounded by life. But in such situation, Calvin did always explain God's life direction in such a way to make it constantly clear that God intends these things for some good. When Claude Ferret, a deacon to whom he had become very close, died from the plague, Calvin wrote that he was a complete wreck. When he realized how much this man had meant to him and been his support and refuge in all circumstances, he could only conclude that God was gravely pointing him to his sins by taking this friend away. He said the same when his own child was taken. Calvin thanked Farel for the letter of comfort he had written to Idelette. She herself was unable to respond because of her grief, and Calvin wrote, The Lord has dealt us a heavy stroke in the death of our little son. But he is our father. He knows what is good for his children. These are beautiful words, and yet we find other things in Calvin's writings as well. He expresses his fear of death. Fear of having to appear before God as a sinful person. A fear that for Calvin only increases as you better come to know God and grow older and desire more and more to live for him. Yet what dominated was the conviction that believers ought to have no fear for death at all. Well known and typical is the letter Calvin wrote to the Lord of Richbourg to comfort him when his son Louis had died from the plague. It reveals everything about how Calvin viewed life and how he saw God's guidance. Anyone who wants to know what Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, both greatly despised but by many more loved, looks like in practice needs to read this letter. Calvin begins by telling of his own sorrow over the death of his friend Claude Ferret, who had been Louis' teacher, and about his worries for his own family when the plague raged in Strasbourg. When I received the message about the death of Master Claude and of your son Louis, I was so shocked and so despondent that for several days I could only cry. And although I tried to find strength in the presence of God and wanted to comfort myself with the refuge he grants us in time of need, I still felt as if I was not at all myself. Really, I was no longer able to do the normal things, as if I myself were half dead. There is no such thing as a hardened Kelvin here, who rooted in God's almighty power undauntedly and emotionlessly lets all things pass over him. Rather, we see a Kelvin who is at his wit's end, overwhelmed by grief. He spoke of these things so as not to give the impression that it was easy for him to talk when offering comfort to the Richbourg and exhorting him to stand firm. He knew the pain of losing a child, he knew the pain of that hole, and he knew the burden of the why question. But that was exactly why he pointed the Richbourg to God's providence. I quote, There is nothing that robs us more of our power, nothing that dejects us more than when we let ourselves fall into such complaints and questions as, Why did things go like this? Why not another way? Why like that just here? There would be reason to utter such words if we on our part had made a mistake and if we had neglected our duty. But if we have done nothing wrong in this matter, there is also no place for these types of complaints. In this way, Kelvin tried to set this father free from such endless questioning as well as from self-reproach and guided him to the only conclusion that Kelvin thought could offer comfort. And so it is God who has reclaimed your son, that son whom he entrusted to us to care for him under the condition that he ever remain his possession. For that reason, Calvin contrasts the present life with the life to come. If 
in your pondering over your son, you were to consider how difficult it is in these dark times to bring our life in a pure manner to a good end, you would surely consider happy one who has been delivered from this at an early age. Kelvin, in this context, used the image of her life as a journey through stormy seas and spoke of what a blessing it was to arrive at a safe haven earlier than expected. Kelvin also praised the boy for his conduct and faith and for the good things that were expected of him. But he immediately anticipated the objection he thought the Rishpur would raise, namely that he knows his son is now in heaven, but that the reality remains that he lost a child. It is clear that Kelvin himself knew the questions and the difficulties that could take the wind out of the sails of any form of comfort. But the fact that this is God's way does not mean we may not grieve over it. You will say, says Kelvin, that all of this is too heavy to drive away or suppress the grief of a father so as to suffer no more pain at the death of your son. But I am not asking you to suffer no more pain, for this is not the life view that we are taught in the school of Christ, that we lay aside the God-given human emotions and that we turn from people into stones. Kelvin was not of stone, and if there are Reformed people who are, they are not Calvinists. Conclusion Many more authors could be mentioned. Many more works could be cited, and I hope I have aroused your interest in this matter. Death is awfully present in this world. Young people think and ponder about it more than we as parents know. Death is a reality in the life of your congregation, of your friends, of your relatives, and just as much in your own life. Luther and Calvin are still today excellent guides in thinking biblically on this issue and in helping those in grief and fear. Almost 500 years ago, they taught a new way of dying. But since their textbook was just as ours, God's Word, we do well to keep listening to them. Thank you for your patience. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.